we turn to John 15. The Gospel according to John chapter 15. We read this chapter in connection with our treatment of Lord's Day 24. We read the inspired word of our God. I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, He is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another, as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit. And that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of this world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of this world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak, For their sin. He that hateth me hateth my Father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. 
But now they have both seen and hated both me and my father. But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have seen, because ye have been with me from the beginning. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I say, we read this in connection with Lord's Day 24. In the back of our Psalters on page 13, question and answer 62 through 64. Question 62, but why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? Because that the righteousness which can be approved of before the tribunal of God must be absolutely perfect and in all respects conformable to the divine law. And also that our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. What? Do not our good works merit which yet God will reward in this and in a future life? This reward is not of merit but of grace. But doth not this doctrine make men careless and profane? By no means. For it is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Catechism here expresses a profound understanding of human nature. So easy it is and so prone we are to pat ourselves on the back and to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. To believe that we're living good lives and therefore our salvation in part is dependent upon ourselves and upon what we've accomplished. We even believe sometimes that we deserve a reward, acknowledgement perhaps for our good. Maybe at other times we think we really deserve a break in this situation. We ought not be treated so harshly because after all, look at how we've been living. Look at how we've been conducting ourselves. We don't deserve sorrow. We don't deserve suffering. We ought to have peace. Prosperity should be our lot. We look at ourselves more highly than we ought. And then we begin to puff ourselves up over others. We think we deserve better than they. After all, look at what we've done. Look at what we've accomplished. Our works deserve something before God. Beloved, this proud response is flatly condemned. In verse 16 we read, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit. Your salvation has nothing to do with yourself. It has nothing to do with me. We didn't make ourselves worthy. That salvation is only because God chose us and set his love upon us. And as a result of that wonder, we now abound in gratitude and thankfulness. Another response that also is possible, as Romans 6 points out, is the fact that someone thinks, I'm saved, it's all of grace, therefore it doesn't matter how I live. And so now, I can sin. I can walk in sin. It doesn't really matter because after all, my salvation is not of myself, it's all of God and all of God's grace. That response similarly 
is condemned. We read here that we are united to Christ. And as those who abide in Christ, as those who have Christ's words abiding in us, we will abound to thankful praise and to godly living. Now the world tells us, and even the church world, that if you're going to teach that man's good works don't have anything to do with earning his or her salvation, then you're teaching a doctrine that's going to encourage godlessness. The only way that you can get people from church and the only way that you can get people motivated to do what's right is to have to somehow tie some idea of merit or earning to their works. Otherwise, they're never going to be motivated to do what's right, to do what's good in God's eyes. Beloved, the preaching that will drive to despair is the preaching that emphasizes that man's salvation is dependent on his works in some regard. That will drive to despair. To stress that our standing before God is dependent on me and it's dependent in some sense on my works is frightening. And the result then is that I'm doomed to everlasting destruction and damnation. We know in our hearts our own weakness. We know our inability to stand before God. And Lord's Day 23 established the fact that my righteousness has nothing to do with myself. It's an imputed righteousness. Christ took upon himself all my sins, and Christ now applies to my account his righteousness. And we stand in awe of that. I am righteous, not on the basis of anything of myself, but the work of Jesus Christ and his righteousness alone. That's the preaching that comforts. That's the preaching that will encourage holy and godly living. The preaching that directs our righteousness to Christ and directs us to him as the one to whom we're joined and out of whom we live. And the Bible teaches clearly that Jesus Christ accomplished everything necessary for your and my salvation. Among all the truths that are taught in the Bible, none are taught so plainly and so clearly and so transparently as this truth, that our justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. It's exclusively on the basis of the satisfaction and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's not according to the law. It's all of grace. That preaching does not undermine the responsibility to live a life of thankfulness and obedience. That preaching directs us to Christ. And it directs us to the wonder of God's goodness to us. And it moves us to desire to be thankful. How is it that we will show our gratitude to this great God who's done such wonders for us? How can I stand before him when I know how undeserving I am? Beloved, this, by God's grace, works sanctification. The God who justifies also sanctifies. And it directs us to the truth that our hope is found in God alone. The catechism reflects here the teaching of John 15. What is your and my only comfort? Harking back again to Lord's Day 1. That I'm not my own. I belong to Jesus Christ. It's that union to Christ that's on the foreground here in John 15. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. But thank God that he's taken you and he's joined you 
to the vine. He's taken us as dead branches and grafted us into Christ. And by virtue now of our union to Christ, we will bring forth fruit. And we will do so abundantly. That's the marvelous testimony of verse 8. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. We look then at this Lord's Day under the theme justification and good works. Noting first of all that works are repudiated. There is no place for us to lean on or trust in our works as the basis of our salvation. Secondly, note the reward of grace. And finally, the thankful Christian. The righteousness which can be approved of before the tribunal of God must be absolutely perfect. Again, the catechism is setting forth. What is necessary for me to know salvation in Jesus Christ? And the point is, you need to be righteous. What does it mean to be righteous? God requires perfect obedience to his law. We must love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we must love the neighbor as ourselves. And we must do so perfectly. God is not satisfied with you saying, I'm doing my best. God says, no, I demand of you perfect obedience. An obedience that flows from a heart that exclusively loves God and desires God in everything. Now, you are not capable of that. I am not capable of that obedience. Sin has contaminated every aspect of our being. God's justice demands perfect righteousness. The creature owes everything to her creator. God created us good. He created us to honor him, to love him, to serve him. And now what's the situation? Because of sin, I can't. And I won't. Luke 17, verse 10 states, even if we would give everything that we are to God, we would still be unprofitable servants. We couldn't earn anything because God would merely say, well, that's what I expect of you. In no sense would we be able to earn anything before God. God's demand is just. The soul that sins, that soul must die. And God is not satisfied with anything other than perfect obedience and righteousness. A builder doesn't set to build a house and say, but I'm going to do my best. Even though the walls aren't square, even though things are crooked, I did my best. He wants everything square, and he needs to have it square in order that the doors open so that the windows fit, so that everything works faithfully. Jehovah God is not satisfied with anything other than that which is right, that which is true that which is perfect according to his perfect righteousness. And Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, reflects the teaching of Scripture. Cursed be he that conformeth not to all the words of this law to do them. And that curse affects us all. I have not been faithful to all the words of God's law, and therefore I with you am cursed. Now, the catechism goes on to say our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. And now we're talking about the situation of the Christian, even the one who is redeemed in Christ, yet his best works are imperfect and defiled with sin. The scriptures never brag about natural man's ability, but always demonstrates natural man's inability to do anything that's good before God. Isaiah 
64 verse 6 stresses we're all unclean. Our righteousness is only as filthy rags. Romans 3. There is none righteous. No, not one. The fact that everything that we do is defiled with sin. And that the confessions reflect. In the handout, in the third and fourth heads of doctrine, the corruption of man is established. And the true doctrine, having been explained, the synod rejects the error of those who would try to say that man yet is able to do some good. Note that in error five. We reject the error of those who teach that the corrupt natural man can so well use the common grace by which they understand the light of nature or the gifts still left in them after the fall that he can gradually gain by their good use a greater, namely, the evangelical or saving grace and salvation itself. And that in this way, God in his part shows himself ready to reveal Christ unto all men since he applies to all sufficiently and efficiently the means necessary for conversion. And then the rejection of that for the experience of all ages and the scripture do both testify this is untrue. He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances unto Israel. He hath not dealt so with any nation and as for his ordinances they have not known them. Who in the generations gone by suffered all the nations to walk in their own way? And they, having been forbidden of the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and when they were come over against Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit suffered them not. In other words, Jehovah God is the one alone who executes his goodness according to his own perfect counsel and plan. And God ordains that there are some even to whom the gospel will not go. God will not send the gospel to some because among them is not found his children. It's not the sense that God gives all men a chance because of some innate goodness that's found within them. And therefore, by that so-called common grace, they're able to understand things and make decisions that are right. Scripture stresses, no, man is not capable, man is not able Man of himself is inclined to all evil and to all sin. Now the one who is grafted into Christ by faith can do good. But even that goodness is yet tainted and affected by the sin that remains within our natures. Never ever can those good works that man does become the foundation or ground of their salvation. Always they're the fruit. And so the whole point here of the catechism of this Lord's Day is this. Must we do good works? Yes, we must do good works. Do those good works serve as the reason why we're saved? No, absolutely not. They only are the fruit of God's work of salvation. In no way can any work that we perform ever serve as the foundation, the ground of our salvation. Revelation 3 verse 17 clearly teaches that elect, sinners are saved as sinners in themselves wretched they're miserable they're poor they're blind they're naked in other words god doesn't save us because he saw something good in us and on the basis of that therefore he saves us our salvation is all of grace and god justifies the ungodly those who are not righteous those who are unrighteous those who are lost sinners in themselves but he lacked from eternity and saved through Jesus Christ. The darkness and the depravity of man so great that unless God himself, by his word and spirit, opens the heart and illuminates the understanding, man would never believe and man would never 
pursue the things of God or his kingdom. And we defend, we speak of it from the Bible, the truth of man's utter depravity. God alone is able to open the eyes. And that's why we have the pictures that are set forth in the Bible of God raising individuals from the dead. By nature, we're dead. We can't do anything that would be pleasing in God's eyes. But God, by a wonder of grace, takes those who are dead and now gives them life. So then the question is raised again. What about us now then, who have life, who are new creatures in Christ? Is it such that we can lean on our own works or that we can look to our works as any kind of ground or foundation of our salvation or worthiness? Absolutely not. That's the fruit of our salvation. In no way can that serve as the ground or the reason. The fact that we have that desire and the fact that we seek to do good is evidence that we are united to Christ and that Christ is the one at work in our lives. Now some would say that God commands and the commands of God imply that God also gives the grace for them to listen and to obey. In other words, God commands all men everywhere, repent and believe. And because that command now comes to all men, that implies those individuals have the ability to repent or to believe. And again, the Bible emphasizes, no, that's not the case. That is true with regard to God's children. As the commands come to us as God's children, God not only sends the external command, he works in our heart by his spirit the desire and the ability to respond. So that he says, love me. And then he works by his spirit in our hearts the desire to love God and to walk in obedience to God. But God's commands themselves do not imply ability. For God's elect, by God's grace. For instance, God commanded Pharaoh, let my people go. Did that imply that God wanted Pharaoh to do so? Or does it imply that Pharaoh had the ability or the desire to let the people of go? Pharaoh was not willing. Pharaoh did not desire it. God's command in no way implied God working in Pharaoh's heart that desire or that willingness. It doesn't even mean that God, according to the will of his decree, wanted Pharaoh to let the people go. According to God's sovereign decree, he knew that Pharaoh would not, and he hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he could send his ten mighty plagues. But God commands, and men are held accountable for those commands. With God's children again, God works regeneration, new life. And now the command comes, and God works in us also that joy and that obedience. But it's all the fruit of God's work of salvation. It's nothing for which we can take ourselves credit. The Arminian position has always been that God commands all men everywhere to repent, and therefore he gives also all men everywhere the ability to repent. God gives man the ability, but then man refuses to do it. And therefore, God in heaven wants all men saved. He desires them all to be present, but they refuse, even though he gives them good gifts that would enable them to respond. God is dependent then on the creature. God is a prostrate, weakened idol. And God's commands then are left by men unable to be performed so that God's wishes now don't take place. 
We reject, beloved, that error. As renewed children of God, we desire to walk in obedience to Him. And we desire that by virtue of His work within us. But that depravity still always clings to our natures. When we do good, evil yet is present within us. If you think, what would be the highest good that we do? Turning from our sin, spending time in prayer, gathering in worship. And yet, even in these activities, sin still corrupts our best works. We make carnal requests. We yet have carnal desires. When we repent, we don't do so as sincerely as we ought. We don't turn from all the sins that we know we are guilty of, only some at times. Again, there is no way that our salvation can be based upon our own works. If it were so, we would be doomed. Those works are the fruit of God's work within us. And as such then, serve to give him honor and glory. And so the catechism asks, why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? And the essential difference consists in this. Is the elect sinner justified by God, received into salvation truly and only without any of his own merit, and purely by God's sovereign grace in Jesus Christ alone? Or are the sinner's works in part contributing to his salvation and justification before God? And the basis, beloved, of Scripture again, we emphatically deny that man in any way as to his own works or ability can take any credit for his justification. Justification is by faith alone in Christ alone and on the basis of Christ's righteousness alone. Will we stand before the judge of heaven and earth alone or in Christ? That's ultimately the question that we face. The pagans of this world, the Muslims, Jews insist salvation is according to their works. The Arminians modify it slightly saying, the way of salvation is credited both to God and to man because faith is my work and faith is something that I do. Christ is the primary cause, but man is still the secondary cause. There's still something that man must do. And again, it's a denial of Christ alone. The Roman Catholics teach two different justifications in the life of a person. First, God justifies without works, and then God justifies by works. They teach baptism as the first act of justification then. All of their original sin is washed away. And now man is able to maintain a sinless walk. And so God justifies initially by grace, but then the subsequent justification with regard to our own works and our own actual sins is on the basis of our obedience and our perseverance. Beloved, as we stand before the living God, we confess, I lean on nothing but the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. His righteousness is my only hope and my only salvation. Christ's righteousness is perfect before the sight of God. And we're given that righteousness as a free gift of God. 
Faith is a gift from God. It's the means by which we are able to experience the blessings of salvation. And all our works are the fruit of that glorious work of God. And so Jesus says, I am the vine, my father, the husbandman. My father has taken you dead branches and he's grafted you into me. All of grace, not on the basis of anything of yourself. And now abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. We live out of Christ, and in him we find our joy and our hope. Now in that connection, the catechism raises a question about our works meriting. Question 63, what? Do not our good works merit, which yet God will reward in this and in a future life? And the answer is this reward is not of merit, but of grace. The Bible makes clear that there is a reward for those who live lives of obedience. And we can find many passages that teach that sense. Luke 18, verses 29 and 30 teach that self-denial for the kingdom's sake will result in manifold rewards now as well as eternal life. Romans 8, verse 17 teaches that suffering with Christ is the way to be glorified with Christ. And those who suffer with Christ will experience then rewards of God. Hebrews 11, verse 16 expresses the desire of the saint for heavenly life. And that that being the motivation of pilgrims and strangers, that they look for that city that had foundations. And that God granted it to those who walk by faith. The book of Revelation is filled with motivations for obedience and setting forth those motivations. For instance, in Revelation 11, in verses 17 and 18, and the four and twenty elders which sat before God in their seats fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thee thanks, Lord God Almighty which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that thou shouldst give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldst destroy them which destroy the earth. That God would give reward to his servants, the prophets, and to the saints. Revelation 20 In verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. The Bible teaches that there is a reward for God's children. God rewards according to our works. Now, the Heidelberg Catechism here denies a reward, but not by contradicting that truth that's found through Scripture, that God rewards the righteous. It contradicts this. The reward is not of merit. The reward is of grace. Is it true that there is a reward? Yes. But that reward is not on the basis of anything of yourself. It's nothing that you've earned or deserved. It's a wonder of God's grace. It's not earned by us. It's a gift. God gives to us. And we see the wonder of this. Ephesians 2 talks about the fact that God has ordained 
our good works from the, before the foundation of the world. God having previously ordained those works and then creating us in order that we might fulfill the works that he has ordained. And then in his goodness, rewarding his children for those works that he himself has worked in them. What a great God. What a wonder of God's grace. We don't deserve anything. But yet God is pleased not only to save us, but then to work in us by his spirit so that there is fruit unto that salvation and then to bring us into glory and to reward us according to the works that he before ordained that we would walk in. That's the reward of grace. It's not anything we can take credit for. It's something that God himself ordained and Jesus earned for us. And as we study the Bible, we realize that the Bible talks about graduated rewards even in heaven. We read of the parables, and we have the parable of the sower. Some are given 30-fold, some are giving 60-fold, some 100-fold. So that they're different graduations of that reward that are given to individuals. We read of the parable of the talents, where one is given one, one is given five, one's given ten. And as we study those passages, we come away from the fact that God grants to everyone that which he has ordained. Not that we're saved according to our works. Not that our salvation is based or dependent upon our righteousness. But rather, all of this is merited by Jesus' perfect righteousness and obedience. And it's all according to God's sovereign, eternal counsel and plan. Why is it that God allows one child to die in the womb, another individual to live 20 years, another to live 90 years? Why is it that God ordains then a different measure of works for each of those individuals. And why is it that God talks then about the fact that he is the one rewarding those works? One would say that's not fair. What about the one who's lived longer than another? Beloved, our good works ordained by God from eternity, fruits that God himself is working in Christ in and through us. God is the one who's ordained our place in glory. God is the one that has ordained every aspect of our lives. And he's ordained that we will receive a reward in Jesus Christ, a reward of grace, not of works, and that it all be for his glory and for his honor. So that to all eternity in heaven, we're not going to be jealous one of another. We're going to be thanking and praising God for his goodness in giving to us the place that we occupy justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God calls us then to make use of what we are and what we have to his glory. He calls us, he commands us, abide in me. He calls us to walk in obedience and in godliness. We will be chastised when we walk in disobedience. He admonishes us again and again. And he uses those admonitions, he uses his word in order to work that fruit in our lives. That we might bring forth fruit and that we might confess that we are Christ's. And all that we have and all that we are is of his grace alone. Beloved, that results in a thankful Christian. And that's the point of the last question and answer. But doth not this doctrine make men careless and profane? By no means. 
It is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. Every last one of those whom God has chosen and grafted into Christ will bring forth fruits to his glory. Some fruits like Lot, others fruits like Abraham or David, God ordaining all of the various aspects of his children, all for his glory and to his praise. The argument, then, is answered. The argument is teaching justification apart from works is going to lead to Christians living ungodly lives. This doctrine that we're righteous without anything of ourselves will result in Christians living in all kinds of sinful and evil ways. We can afford to be careless. We can afford to be profane, they'll say. It doesn't really matter if we join ourselves to a church. It really doesn't matter how we live. Let us sin that grace may abound. Romans 6, verse 1. The Christian will not live that way. God will work his spirit in the hearts of his children that they will flee their sin. They will fight against that sin. They will desire to live unto him. God will work his spirit in their hearts that though they walk in sin, they repent and they turn from that sin. The Christian is no longer under bondage to sin. He's bound to Christ. And he's a slave to Jesus Christ. Now, as a member of Jesus Christ, sin still remains within us and in our flesh. But God so powerfully works within us that we desire to live unto him. The justified child of God will walk in sanctification. And that's the importance of those two truths knit together. Those whom God declares righteous, whom he justifies... He also works in by his spirit to live in holiness and to pursue his will. The Christian must do good works. And the Christian will do good works because of the power of the spirit working within him to will and to do according to God's good pleasure. He will bring forth much fruit. Verse 5. The same bringeth forth much fruit. He's not satisfied ever in his life. He's always desiring to bring forth more praise and thankfulness. He's always battling hard against sin and desiring to put off that old man. Such is the work of God's grace. Not in order to earn anything, but to show his gratitude to this great God who's delivered me and who saved me. It's impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. Jesus Christ has broke the bondage to sin. His atonement and his death condemned sin in the flesh. I am dead to sin. That's the confession of the Christian. Sin no more has dominion. It no more reigns within me. Yet at the same time, there is still sin in me. Sin is in me, but it doesn't have dominion over me. It doesn't have power over me. So that I am dead to sin, even though that sin yet remains within my nature. But that sin is there against my will. God has worked in me now a desire to do battle and to fight it. And by faith, living out of Christ, I live unto him. The just shall live by his faith. Habakkuk 2 verse 4. 
And that life of the just then is flowing out of faith, which is flowing out of that bond that unites us to Christ. And we're living now out of Christ. We're trusting in him. We're relying on him. We're seeking to give him glory and give him honor as we go through life. That same faith by which I'm united to Christ assures me of forgiveness and makes me worthy of life everlasting. I know and I believe that I am a recipient of that marvelous wonder. I still sin. I fall short of God's glory. My conscience smites me, as we noted in the previous Lord's Day. But I look to Christ. And rather than pursuing a profane, godless life, I know guilt. I know shame. He turns me. He brings me to repentance. And he works that sanctification in my heart and in my life. And more and more is transforming me according to the renewing of my mind to his glory and to his honor. This is his work. It is a work that will not be completed until the moment that we die. But Jehovah God is at work. And it's impossible then that those who are united to Christ not bring forth fruit. The impossibility is found not in me, not in you, but in Christ. Those who are in Christ will bring forth fruits. They will be sorry for their sin. They will turn from that sin. And they will bring forth the fruit then that the apostle here, or that Jesus here speaks of as part of that union. If one continues careless, one continues profane, one continues unrepentantly in sin, they give evidence then at that moment that they're not walking in union with Christ. And if they continue that way unrepentantly till they die, they give evidence They never were joined to Christ. They didn't know what that union was. They may have acted and walked as though they had that faith, but they didn't. That faith was not evident. Those who have union with Christ will walk by faith, and they will give evidence of that by living unto God and to his glory. Must I grow in grace? Must I strive to trust God more? Emphatically. Not so that God will be happy with me. Not to obtain God's favor. But to show my thankfulness to God. I love Him. He has delivered me from the bondage of sin. He's given me a Savior who stood in my place and took all my sin upon Him. And He's showered me now with the righteousness that is in Jesus Christ. And my desire now is to live unto Him. I'm not saved by my works. I'm saved by Christ alone. By faith alone. And my thankfulness and my praise is the fruit of his work. The converted child of God hates sin, flees iniquity, loves God, seeks to live in union with Christ, and desires to bring forth fruit for the glory and honor of God. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for the wonder of thy grace worked in our hearts. Cause that by a true and living faith we might walk humbly before thee. Work repentance in our hearts. Give unto us a heartfelt sorrow for sin. And strengthen us in our resolve to do all to the glory and honor of thy name, confessing that our salvation and our righteousness is in Jesus Christ alone, on the basis of his perfect sacrifice alone, and that we are those who confess with joy and with thankfulness the wonder of thy goodness and desire that all glory, all praise be directed unto thee alone. Amen.